Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to the CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris. Hello and welcome to another Collecting Cars podcast. Sorry it's been a while, but our strategy has always been quality over quantity. And I'm glad to say that we're fulfilling that role today because I'm here at Gordon Murray Automotive to see his new T50 supercar, but also to talk to him uh, not only about that project, but his fascinating life around uh, racing cars and road cars because let's not forget this is the man that built world championship f1 cars uh that were driven by the lights of pk and of course etten senna but he was the father of i think the most famous revered supercar of them all the one that's still the rubric for everyone that's making such vehicles the mclaren f1 and he's back with a new car the t50 gordon that was a long interview sorry a long introduction because you've done so much um, I'm sitting in your building, which is amazing for me because I drive past this on the way to my day job the whole time and it's always empty. I always think, when's it going to kick off? But it's kicking off now, isn't it, with your T50? Yeah, we're right here, yes. We actually um, we had an event in this building in November 2017 to celebrate uh, 50 years of car design. Uh, and now we're back for real uh, with T50. Uh, I've just seen the vehicle. It's embargoed until, was it the 6th? 4th. 4th. Well, this won't go out before then, so it doesn't matter. I don't like to speak like, speak like it's an embargo. Um, I'm, I'm just fascinated by how simple it is, how small it is, and it seems to me to be the antidote to the modern hypercar that's got a bit out of control. It would be easy for us two to sit here now and crap on about how wrong it's got and sound like two really old buggers, and I want to avoid that, but some of it's going to be inevitable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, yeah, I just, you know, I've, over the last sort of, uh, not 30 years, because I think 15 years ago was the wrong time to do this. The technology hadn't moved on enough to make a much better car than the F1, and also people hadn't caught up by then. Uh, this is the right time to do it, and uh, 
yeah, I just I just looked back and thought, well, why has nobody done another F1 driver-focused motorcar? Yeah. And why are they all getting bigger and heavier and more complicated and further away from the pure driving experience? That's where it all came from, really. But a large OEM, let's be honest here, isn't in a position to make a vehicle like that now, are they, really? They'd have to have a, s- a separate business that would allow them to go through a low-volume yeah. process, wouldn't they? No, absolutely. And, and that was the other half of my thinking, actually, because... I thought either people didn't get the formula, they didn't understand the formula, the F1, even though it was in front of them, or they did understand the formula, but the, uh, the company they were in and the structure of that company with committees and layers of management wouldn't, uh, exactly, wouldn't allow them to do such a focused motor car. And I think it's probably a combination of those two things. Yeah, and I think the commercial realities need to be acknowledged as well. I'm sure the T50, you know, you've got shareholders and they're going to want to make some money out of it, but it, this doesn't strike me as being all about profit and the supercar has become a profit-making exercise and I think if you were to draw the Venn diagram of words that describe why the supercar hypercar business has got a bit out of control the one thing that would sit in the middle of the Venn diagram would be greed for me I just think car companies have become greedy and we and we sit there and we listen to the likes of you know some of the British ones, let's say, saying we're gonna, we need to make six, seven thousand cars a year, and I just, th- I'm bewildered. I think, well, there can't be seven thousand people that want one of the bloody things. Yes. And, and at that point, <laughs> it's become a bit. The whole thing, the whole thing becomes ridiculous. Yeah, I know that. That's exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly why there's a hundred cars. I was initially under pressure to make more cars and keep the price lower, but uh, I want people to use these like they used the F1 before yep. they got unusable due to the price, unfortunately. Have you still uh, got yours? No, I sold mine about three years Did ago. You? It became untenable to own. I mean, yeah. when, when it was worth um, 600 grand, I used to take people out before speed cameras and show yeah. them how it went. Yeah. And uh, I used to uh, slide it around in the wet and stuff. And then, you know, when it edges up towards the 20 million mark, you think twice about taking it out, which is a, a shame, really. Yeah. You know? uh, whereas this, um, the, the young people now are buying this and, and a huge proportion of our, of our owners are under 45. Yeah. Um, they all missed the F1 experience. Uh, now they have a successful business and the F1 is unaffordable again. So what I say to them is this is better than the F1 and it's 85% discount and you can use it without <laughs> worrying about it. So. Yeah, I, I, I didn't realize quite how close it would be in terms of its layout and its packaging. I mean, it, it is, it, the, the cabin, if you just if you just walk past it and glanced it in the street, parked up, you'd think that's an F1, wouldn't you? It's it's it really does have that look and feel. Yeah, it's interesting because the uh, the layout, of course, is the same as the F1. The architecture is quite similar, uh, and the forward cabin look that you get with central driving position because you can move the driver forward about two hundred fifty mil. Yeah. Uh, the drive the pedal line is on the center line of the front wheel, which is like a racing car. Yeah. Um, that gives it a distinctive look. So obviously, this one has the same proportions. But interestingly enough, when you put it next to an F1, and we did that exercise um, last week, suddenly the F1 looks rather bloated and heavy and old-fashioned. Yeah. So the what we've done is we've honed the, you know, every every element of the of the equation. Let's say that makes an F1 the, the best driver's car. Fixed the bits that were wrong and made the bits that were right better. So when you sat down with your blank piece of paper, because you said to me earlier that you're still a, a pen and paper man rather than a, a computer man. So this no. is not a CAD exercise. This is No, no. It was all, all the sketches were done on the board. Okay. When you sit there, did you think, do I need to create the, probably the last of my big Gordon Murray projects? Or did you think, I need to 
debug and snag the F1 because they're quite they're two quite different things, aren't they? Yeah, no, no, not at all. The 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 snagging and debugging, as you call it, that was just a byproduct of designing this. Um, no, no, this was this was absolutely down to we're probably at the at the right time to do the last great analog supercar. Ten years time is too late. Ten years early is too early. Yeah. This is probably the perfect time with the technology we have and partners like Cosworth and Extract and, and the other good partners, former Plex and people in the UK, it's a perfect time to do one last great analog car. Um, so th- the basic architecture is carbon tub yep. and um, inboard suspension. Uh, actually, this time I've given away a little bit of weight. I've yep. given away uh, 2.4 kilos. And we've gone for pushrod suspension to okay. try and manage the aero loads because the F1 had virtually no downforce until you got to 150. It was just enough to keep it stable, yeah. which is why it did 240 miles an hour, small, uh, low CD, and uh, not much downforce. This produces quite a bit more downforce. Not ridiculous numbers, but a bit more. And so I went for, I gave away a little bit of weight to um, manage the, the vertical wheel travel a bit okay. better. But it still has enough wheel travel to be usable on a British B road. Oh yeah, oh uh, yeah, I don't do stiff stiffly swung cars. This has got this has got a natural frequency that's probably probably lower than some German cars that you buy out of the showroom. Yeah, well that's not saying much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Um uh, and uh, does it have a locking differential in it or is it open diff? No, no, it does have it does have a Salisbury diff. Does it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um okay, I want to just stop there with the with the T50. We're going to come back to that, but I want to just talk about um, how you ended up in this position because your CV almost doesn't look real when you read it now it's remarkable and you must be incredibly proud of it I don't know why you're sitting here talking to us you could be sunning yourself somewhere else but um, so you started out you're South African born yep. um, and uh, studied Durban was it Durban yes I was born Durban, in Durban. Uni. yeah um, and then h- how did you end up coming to Europe and and obviously just hawking yourself about and trying to get a job well <laughs> Well, I grew up in a motor racing family. Yeah. Uh, my dad used to race uh, bikes, cross-country bikes, uh, motorbikes before the war. And then he was away in the war for four years. My brother was born before. I was born, born afterwards when my dad came back. And um, from as early as I can remember, I can recall going to race meetings at least once a month uh, with my mum and my dad. And they would be a real mixture. They might be a hill climb one weekend. Uh, there might be circuit racing. We had around the houses. We had a Durban's version of Monaco, <laughs> um, along along what was called Snell Parade in the in the late forties, early fifties, until somebody got killed and they closed it down. But um, I can remember going to those. It might have been hot rod racing, speedway, motorcycle racing. Um, but I was smitten from. I can remember my earliest recollection is watching my dad work on local racing cars, help people. He was a motor mechanic all his life. Um, in 51 so I would have been five or six and uh, I, I was just all I wanted to be was a racing driver you know I didn't I never went through the fire engine and as soon as I could get my hands on anything that went quickly soapboxes my dad used to make all my bicycles because we were very working class four of us sleeping in one bedroom in those days and for the first 15 years of my life and um, uh, yeah anything I'd get my hands on and then when I got to be a teenager, I looked, go-karting was in its infancy, and I looked at go-karting and central for some plans to build a car. But by the time, and I did the usual slot car racing on big circuits and 24-hour racing and all that stuff. And then, actually, 
I was only a year or 18 months away from getting a, a license to drive a car and I thought why don't I dump the go-kart idea and build myself a proper racing car. So At I that did, point were you more passionate about the concept of driving the vehicle yourself yeah. or making the vehicle better through your No, no, knowledge? all driving. All, all driving. driving. The point. only reason I made a vehicle um, was the fact that I couldn't afford to buy one. Okay. Um, that was it, basically. I just had to go racing. And Thank uh, God for that moment happening. That's slightly <laughs> altered automotive <laughs> yes. history, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so racing out there was, was getting, in the 60s, was starting to get people that hadn't imported Lotus 23s or Elthans or things like that yet, so uh, Lola Mark 1s. It was just before that period, so you could be quite competitive with a homemade car. And uh, I, I had this great... I didn't go to university because I couldn't afford that, luckily, because I wouldn't have been here if I'd gone to university. So I was doing a sandwich course at a tech college, and I did a five-year apprenticeship as a mechanical engineering designer at a company making injection mouldings and, and steel drums and things. So I was getting the practical experience, the academic experience, and I was earning just enough money to buy the odd you know, uh, bit for the, for the racing car. But I learned to weld, my dad taught me to weld, and I did everything myself to save money. So I built the frame, the suspension, made the fuel tank, the seats, steering wheel. And I was an engine man. So at college, I was studying thermodynamics and theory of machines. And my final year project was designing an engine. I was very much into engines and not so much into chassis. So I had to send off to Britain for uh, books on tuning the engines and chassis design. And there was only one book in those days. David Phipps and Costin did a book on racing and sports car chassis design in 65, I think. And I sent for that and learned about chassis. So this um, very organic introduction to, to building a car was, was what must have made you a unique proposition when you arrived in Europe. Because you'd done everything yourself, hadn't you? You, you didn't look around going, that's the bit I do. You'd yeah. done it all. No, by the time I was 21, I had the academic qualification. I'd won a few races, won a few hill climbs, which was relatively easy in South Africa. Um, and I, I could design an engine. I built my own engine, made my own pistons, made my own camshaft. Um, uh, so when I arrived, yeah. But I still didn't think, I was quite, I was quite naive, really. I didn't think I'd, be, I'd have a shot at racing at all. So I, I hauled myself around. Oh, I jumped on a, I couldn't, I couldn't afford much, so I jumped on a, a cargo boat, a converted cargo boat, to come over. Uh, you had and, to you, and, you, and you felt that you'd outlived, you sort of outgrown South Africa by then, I presume. Yeah, for on, on lots of levels, yes. actually. I don't I, want to go into all that stuff. Obviously, no, it must no, have been no, a complicated place to live at that I, time. I, yeah. My other love was music, and UK is, was the centre of the universe for racing and music. And, I, and it was quite claustrophobic, the colonies. So I just, on all levels, I just wanted to get out of there, really. Yeah. So I jumped on this cargo boat, arrived... And I, as I said, I, I, I didn't even consider racing, let alone Formula One. You know, I thought, 21-year-old kid from, uh, from South Africa getting off the banana boat, you know, I'm not going to get a job in racing. So I hawked myself around uh, car companies. I actually had an interview booked with Lotus because I'd written to Colin Chapman six months before, but hadn't followed it. And they said, yeah, as soon as you get here, come for an interview. You sound like the sort of person we could use, vehicle engineering. And I hadn't contacted them again or read the papers and I didn't know there was a mini recession going on in the beginning of 70, the winter of 69. And 
I got all the way up to Lotus and there were all these unsold cars and my interview lasted about five minutes and that was the end of that. It's probably been the same since then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, so, so you've arrived here and then, so what was, the, what was the moment that you think back that altered your career path? I think it was the, the, the moment I walked into Brabham. So I'd been over here about five months already and uh, nearly six months actually. And I saw a job advertised down at Fair Oaks Aerodrome with um, Len Bailey, who was designing a car for Ford for Le Mans, the three hour, I think it was called. And he had a small design office down on Fair Oaks, um, Alan Mann racing yeah, there. Yeah. And uh, I answered, I phoned, I beg your pardon, I phoned. And, and Len said, oh yeah, we can do, we, we're desperate for another draftsman, another designer, you know, come down. So I came down and I got there and I think he, he was only paying about, 20 pounds a week or something and um, and then he, I showed him all my drawings all my calculations my racing car my engine I built and he said oh you know definitely the right sort of guy and uh, eventually he said oh, I'm not sure we can afford another person and off I went and then he phoned me again and said come back for another interview and while I was in the design office there was an old boy in the corner and he said he's never going to make up his mind he's wasting your time you know there's only three of us here I don't think he can afford anybody else. But Brabham, just down the road at Newhall on the canal, they're looking for a designer. And I went, Brabham Formula One team? And he said, yeah. <laughs> so I walked to Brabham. Couldn't afford cabs in those days. I walked to Brabham and uh, arrived. And Ron Toronak, who was, of course, the, the, the T in BT. Just recently passed away, hasn't he? Uh, Is that oh, right? Has he? Oh. I thought he had. Oh, right. Is that okay. right or not? I know he was in his 90s because okay. I sent him a special yeah. message yeah. for his 90th. Anyway, so uh, it was Jack and, and Ron who were running the business, and Jack was still driving in 70. And uh, Ron interviewed me, wasn't interested in my academic qualifications at all, loved the fact I designed and built my own car and engine mm. and won races, and I got the job. And just like that, in 15 minutes. And as I was leaving, the, the real guy for the interview was walking in the door as I was walking out. So they were expecting somebody for an interview and thought it was me. <laughs> So if there's ever a moment, that's it. We'll find out that was, um, I don't know, a young Adrian Newey or something. We'll find out who that was. I wonder who that individual was, because their life was changed profoundly by that as well. Yeah. So, so it's early 70s, you're um, suddenly in F1. And, and what level of responsibility do you have to start with? Are you uh, really bits and pieces. Because I was a, d a design engineer as opposed to a draftman, so I could do all the stress calculations and I could do suspension geometry and stuff like that. Um, Ron very soon and Jack found out that I could do all the stress calculations and I found out they'd been doing their bump steer and Ackerman wrong for years and pointed that out so I quickly got elevated from doing bits and pieces on Formula 3 cars Formula 2 cars to I got the responsibility of designing a one-off um, Repco V8 powered Formula 2 car which went on to win the championship and then I got given an Indy car to study and I was, then I started working on the Formula One cars. And then in that 18-month period, where I was climbing the ladder slowly, Bernie, Bernie Eccleston arrived, bought Jack's share immediately, and then within, I think, nine months or so, bought Ron's share. They didn't get on very well. Bought Ron's share. So suddenly there was this guy out of the blue who nobody knew what the hell was going on at all. Um, and... I, I thought it's a bit of a mess. And, and on the quiet, a guy called Alan de Cadenet approached me and said, I want to go and 
take a British design and go and win Le Mans, three-litre prototype and win Le Mans, and I've got a five-grand budget. And I'll pay you, if you leave Brabham, I'll pay you 250 quid to design the car. And after the race, we'll split it, sell it, you know, and we'll split the money. So I thought, well, it's all a bit of a mess here at Brabham. I get to do a whole motor car. Fantastic. So I shook his hand. And then Bernie approached me and said, very soon afterwards, said, I fired the other four guys, your chief designer, and I'm sick of all these bits and pieces. We were running three different cars, 37, uh, 33, and something else, uh, 34. And it was a mess. I think we had Graham Hill driving and we'd scored eight points or something. And Bernie, Bernie's not a loser. Yeah. You know, he hates coming second like me. So he said, right, that's it. Um, your chief designer, I fired the other guys and I want a brand new Formula One car for 73 season. The Le Mans race was in 72 and the car did very well. Um, so that sort of put me on the map a little bit, the Le Mans car. And then um, I got to do a absolutely clean sheet of paper using nothing from the old cars which was the triangular car that was the 42 44 and won my first grand prix um in 74. it sounds to me taking a step back that you you know there's been some luck on your side because you were clearly a precocious talent but you were given an opportunity to have massive responsibility quite early in your career. Yep. How do you think it would have turned out if you'd had to really sort of climb the greasy pole more slowly? Do you think you'd have had the patience uh, to not do really. it? Not really. All my life, my, my driving force is looking for a new challenge. And of course, for the, for, I can remember sitting in the office for the first month as a junior designer saying, if I get fired, I don't care. I've been in a Formula One office and whatever's next will be next sort of thing. Um, but then, of course, the great challenge is you get to design your own Formula One car. Very soon after that, I wanted to win a race. And after I'd won a race, very soon after that, I was hell-bent on winning a championship. So I was always on a roll, really. Um, I don't know what would have happened if <laughs> I have no idea. Well, you must yeah. have been sitting there. And I'm sure, I'm sure lots of young people listening to this will sympathise with this. You sit there, and even though you don't have the professional experience, or maybe the life experience, you know that you can do it better than the old blokes that are doing it, yes. or the old women, whatever. And you think, do I sit here and bide my time, or do I intervene? And, and how do I demonstrate to them that I can do it better, or that I've got fresher ideas? Yeah, and, and also, I think I was, I was quite bullshit at that age. Uh, I know I was in South Africa, you know. Um, I hated if I didn't. I usually, if I didn't win my class in sports car racing, I crashed. You know, I, I can't remember ever coming second. I always tried too, too hard, really. Um, and it was the same with design, you know. Um, it was really important for me to, to win and to have the best car. And that's why I think the innovation came from, you know. I was always looking for the unfair advantage. That phrase. Yeah, but being autocratic, um, it was great for me because I was the only person then for the next three years uh, in the design office. And then he made me technical director, so I was running the business, not from a financial point of view, but from a... Um, loading the spares, getting the trucks, all the testing, everything. So I was running the business and designing 100% of the car. I had nobody in the d design office with me for three years. Must have been wonderful. It's fantastic. Yeah. Very tiring. So how big was the, how long was the gap between you winning your first race and who was the driver? The first race was Carlos Reutemann. Okay, so Carlos Reutemann was your first race and winning your first championship. Uh, that was, from, that was 74 and the first championship was 81. Okay. Having said that, we probably should have won in 75, and this is where I shot myself, Bernie and I shot myself in the foot. Um, he helped me. 
by not employing somebody else because Har- this 44B was just virtually unbeatable in 75. Yeah. But halfway through the season, I had to design, on top of going to the races, I had to design a brand new car for the Flat 12 Alpha. And I stopped development on the 44. We just took it and set it up and raced it. And if it was quick, it was quick. If it wasn't, we didn't spend too much time thinking about why not. And I think we lost the 75 championship through that. Well, that's fine. Everybody's got those stories, you know. So it was 81 until we uh, won a championship. Um, we have to, before that, talk about the fan car as well. So, which is, is this wonderful talking point because I think people have a grim fascination with that kind of um, freaks corridor of, of designs that, that never quite fitted with the mould. So w- when was the light bulb idea for that? When did you think? Well, it was a necessity rather than a light bulb because um, Colin Chapman and, and Peter Wright came up with ground effect on the Lotus 78, I think it was. 79, wasn't it? Could have been, I don't know. I think it started on the 78. Okay, anyway, yeah, okay. The, the business of sliding skirts and having the wing profile with the um, the inlet, the venturi, and the diffuser section of yeah. the wing, um, and interacting with the ground and sealing it was just light years ahead. And the Ferrari flat 12 was fairly compact, so their cylinder heads, the cylinder heads on a, on a racing car were right where the diffuser had to start sweeping up past the engine. Yeah. And Ferrari is quite compact, the Alpha was huge, and the cylinder heads stuck straight into where the diffuser should be. And although like all the other teams, I was beginning to understand the, the principle of ground effect and the wing shape and stuff. I knew we couldn't do it. So I said to Bernie, we're st- and just when the 46 was finally starting to become competitive and leading races. Um, so I said to Bernie, we're stuffed basically. And I came up with an idea of a twin tub car. So what I did was I designed one where behind the, en- behind the driver, there was a flat bulkhead, no fuel. And then we bolted the engine directly to that, which was the wide bit, and that was the low bit of the Venturi. Okay. So it stuck into the pod. Yeah. And then there was a second monocoque with the fuel and a tube through the middle with a quill shaft and gearbox bolted on the back of the fuel tank. So it was like a four-piece car. But then when I added it all up, it was 30 kilos heavier, and we were already overweight with the Alpha engine, and I thought, that's not going to be competitive. So I dumped that idea... And then I, re- I just got the rule book out again and read, read the aero rules, Article 3.7, again and again. And I thought, hold on a minute, there's a loophole there because it says if anything as primary purpose is to influence the aerodynamic performance of the car, it has to remain stationary relative to the sprung mass. Um, so I went to a lawyer, friend of mine, and I said, what's primary purpose? He said, how many functions have you got? I said, two. And he said, well, it's more than 50%. That'll stand up in any court. So I thought, right, I'll have 45% of the air cooling the car, sucking through a radiator, 55% unashamedly sucking the car to the ground. And uh, all very well to say that, but then the next three months developing the fan, the fan drive, and the skirt system was just a nightmare. And then when all that was finished, I had two weeks to teach the drivers to drive completely differently from everything that was instinct, if you like. Nikki picked it up really quickly. Um, I presume you just had to get up to speed to get it working, didn't well, you? Well, you had to go into a corner. I mean, normally you go into a corner, you know, you brake and you gear the car for maximum torque, not yeah. maximum power. So you hit the apex, and depending on how much downforce you've got, you come back on the throttle around maximum torque, out of the corner, change gear. You had to pick a, pick a gear ratio where you went in at maximum revs, because we could go 
around a third gear corner, 30 miles an hour faster than anybody else. So you, you, you went in at maximum rev, so you're already doing 12,000 in yeah. the corner. And the drivers just held steady throttle, steered for the apex, held steady throttle, and then as they felt the load coming off the car out of the corner, changed up a gear. So it was completely different. And if you didn't kick 12,000 revs, you didn't have the downforce. So it was a, it's a learning curve, really. And did you think when your, your primary move in trying to apply this piece of thinking to motorsport was actually to go and speak to a lawyer, did you think, I'm in a very different world now, this is a strange place I'm in? I'm not trying to justify it to shareholders or think about performance. My first conversation has to be with a lawyer. Well, it was just to double check because I read it, the, the rule again and again. And I thought it's crystal clear, you know, yeah. if it's primary purpose. And, uh, and, and surely, you know, after the race, the CSI, who were the technical body, came along and sealed the car, and sealed it, put it in a truck, sealed the truck, and they came along to Chessington to Brabham after the race with an anemometer, and they got us to rev the engine up through all the rev range, and uh, they measured the air through the radiator and the air through the fan, and they got uh, 40% only for suction and 60% for cooling, so we got a letter to say you can run the car till the end of the year, um, but then we're going to change the rule. And of course, Chapman was livid because he could see his championship. Every race we finished, we would have won. We were two and a half seconds a lap quicker. So yeah. uh, we would have won everything. So he got the other constructors together and got Andretti to say threw stones out the back and all sorts of crap like that. Uh, yeah. What did Bernie think about the whole thing? Did he, was he frustrated that you had the unfair advantage and couldn't deploy it to win a championship? Or did he love the fact that he was basically no, just messing no, with no, them? Bernie's minds? like me. Bernie's a racer. He just loved the fact. Uh, we, we went down, we were just instantly quicker. And, and the, the drivers wouldn't listen because everybody was so incensed, the other teams, so incensed about the performance advantage we had. Um, Bernie said to the drivers, just cool it. Second, third, fourth row, don't care. And of course they can't. So Nicky instantly put it, in the early practice, put it on the front row and John was on the front row. So he pulled the cars in and we, we put them on full tanks. And Nicky's still qualified, I think, second or something <laughs> on full tanks. <laughs> so Bernie loved that bit of it. But it was Bernie that came to me because he was just gaining power in the Formula One Constructors Association. And they said, if you keep racing that car, that's the end. You know? And he came to me and said, what do you think about withdrawing the car for the good of the sport? And of course, I was spitting blood you know? yeah. um, after all that hard work to get the car. But do you think as a designer you'd made your point? No, no, I wanted to win championship. Yeah. I wasn't making a point. I, the whole reason for doing it is because we couldn't do a wing car. Yeah. And I, I wanted to beat Lotus, you know. Chapman was my hero when I was growing up, but boy, it was gloves off, you know, um, at the Grand Prix. Yeah. So um, how did it end at Brabham? So Brabham, um, we won uh, another championship in yeah. 83. That was PK. With the first turbo championship. We I'm got. sure you get asked the whole time about your connection with that and Senna, because that was famous. Um, and obviously he's the man everyone talks about. But talk to me about PK, because he, uh, he's, he's quite a character, isn't he? Oh, he was brilliant. I mean, he was certainly part of the family. He grew up from a kid, really, with us, um, because he came to us from Formula 3. And he used to come in, he, he got a bicycle and a flat near Chessington. And he used to come and sit on the side of the drawing board every day asking questions about why was I drawing that? Why is the gearbox, if I had the gearbox on my drawing board, why was I doing it, you know, with that bearing or that layout? He came to every wind tunnel session. 
he was obsessed with learning about the car and he was a quick driver and he he drove for me for seven years so you know he was part of the family and he was fun too he's real hardcore um, prankster there are many good stories oh, yeah. i'm not going to put you on the spot and say tell me one but think about it now and then before the end see if you can summon one but i hear all sorts of stories and i mm. The, the years when he was at Williams with Nigel Mansell, there's some outrageous stories about how <laughs> yes. he used to wind up. Because <laughs> no, they were quite different personalities, yeah. weren't no, they? No, he was brilliant. I mean, those, those were really fun years. You know? and, and, of course, those years are fascinating for, for my generation because it was when I started watching the sport. And that's when we had crazy fuels, qualifying spec engines with a 1,000 horsepower oh, yeah. and, and, and crazy tyres that would last one lap. I mean, they were gladiators, weren't they? You used to bolt them oh, yeah. in, and you didn't know what was going to happen. I, I said, to, I said to Nelson once, I said, "How do you how do you race with only seven hundred and sixty horsepower, and then qualify with thirteen hundred? You know, how do you how do you drive? How do you go out there and psych up? Because the qualies did one lap, the gearbox and the engine didn't often last one lap. <laughs> the five and a half bar boost, and uh, you know, packing dry ice in the intercooler and water spraying the intercooler and all sorts of things." And usually halfway round, you'd hear bang, you know, and that with a bit of black smoke behind the pits and that didn't make it round, you know. Um, and he said, well, you don't drive it. He said, with that much horsepower, you come out of the corner, you get the car in the middle of the road, so you've got room for snaking, and then you just floor it, basically. You drive around the corner and then floor it down the straights. He said, you couldn't take a line up to the curb and then expect to use 1,300 horsepower. You didn't know where it would end up, no. did you? Um, and I, I heard, to, I come back to the fuel, I heard some great stories about some of the stuff you used to put in these things and uh, sort of corporate guests would be ushered away whilst you filled the things up because it was so noxious and toxic and horrible. <laughs> Is that true or not? Some of the no, fuels were... No, not really. Those are grossly exaggerated. Rumours okay. put out by Renault, actually, okay. who, who looked like they were going to get beaten, of course, and they did. <laughs> we had to win the last three races and we did. Um, no, it was special fuel, but there was no. It was still well within the regs. There were there was no control over certain additives in those days, but there was very heavy control over the uh, uh, the octane, uh, yeah. the Ron number, and uh, we we met the Ron number. It just happened to have some rocket fuel in there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but it was actually the the engine sort of needed it. Um, for cooling as well, the fuel because it, it was it was four cylinders, wasn't it? Yeah. So, and it was, is there any truth in the fact the block? could be, it was related back to a t sort of Group 3, Group 2 touring car block or something. Was uh, there any no, it was a bog-standard off-the-line 318 BMW block. You're joking. Yeah, yeah. And they used to leave them outside. <laughs> if you leave them out in the rain for a year, they age, toughen. Um, yeah, so it was a standard road car block. So how strong are those? <laughs> well, strong enough until we got the Zolder ones and we did the, um, Paul Roche used to call it his Hitler chip. So the, the program, Hitler Prom, yeah. that you put in the program in the car. So we do we two sets of qualities. We do one on, say, a 1,000 horsepower, advanced ignition a little bit, turn the boost up. And then this, if this car survived that, we take the wastegate off completely and put a plate over it. Just weld it shut. Um, pack, <laughs> pack the intercooler with ice. I had a water spray on the intercooler as well. And, and Russia would bring out his Hitler Prom. <laughs> and stick it in the engine and that was the round about the 1300 horsepower and we did that at Zolder and the final loop is just behind the pits and as usual on on the Hitler prom a car came around and we, we could hear bang and we saw this plume of smoke behind the pits and then of course Nelson didn't come around but what had happened is 
the, the, the brake mean effective pressure was so high on the piston that it, it pushed the crank out, it split the block in half all the way around and pushed the bottom of the car out onto the, onto the circuit. And the car was, that was partially chassis, so the car broke in half, basically. And Nelson gently skidded into the grass and the bank with the front bit, and the back bit sort of made a hole in the tarmac. Did you, did you ever feel a responsibility to the driver's safety putting them out in these weapons, or did it... Or was Not it, at all. It was just what they chose to do. Not at all. Was, yeah. they, they loved it. Yeah. Anything that put them on pole. I mean, they liked it more. We, we, it would have been the other way around if we'd said, well, that's a bit dangerous putting that much power in the car. Yeah. Um, th- we would have had complaints, certainly from Nelson. You know, um, The gearboxes used to last one lap, and we had to throw them away because <laughs> they bent the shafts. It's incredible. Unrepeatable times. Because people talk about Can-Am. I'm sure you love Can-Am. Yeah. From a, 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 as being unlimited motorsport. But F1 at that point was almost... It, there were regulations. But it felt so renegade. Yeah, you could still now. innovate. You could still innovate. I remember once with the BT-49, when we were generating over two tonnes of downforce with uh, skirted cars. Uh, and we almost did, I think, a 170-mile lap at Silverstone on Qualies. Um and Nelson was going flat, I can never remember the name, after the hangar straight, the first right-hander. Stowe. Stowe. He was just lifting and flat, wasn't braking for that, um, on, on qualies. And pulling four and I, Gs or something. Well, no, five and a half, I calculated, five and a half G. And he said, if you don't believe me, put another set on, go down, because we had the circuit exclusively with Goodyear, go down and sit in the grandstand and listen. And I did. I drove around and I listened. And he came down the hangar straight, lifted for a second, flat and went round the corner like he was tethered to the middle you know so in those days um yeah we were pulling about five and a half g on qualifies so you've you won was it one or two championships with nelson two two yeah um i always i always loved the parmalat down the side of the car as a kid i always imagined that parmalat was was a, an exotic sort of clothing brand. I was very disappointed <laughs> yeah. to find out that it was milk. Yes. I, I just, it was, it was, dairy, such, it was dairy a shattering produce, moment yes. for me because I just I thought, is it, what is it? Is it a watch make or something? <laughs> no, it's a dairy product. Oh, right. Um, I've never actually bought any. I ought to at some point. Um, they, so, so how did you transition from there to, to working to McLaren? Well, I'd had enough, to be honest. Bernie was losing interest in the team. Bernie's like me, he was looking for the next challenge, exactly, but in his field. And his next challenge was taking over Formula One. And that was getting modest more and more and more likely. And uh, we had, you know, we had Nelson, fell out with Bernie over not much money, uh, Nelson was asking, and so we lost Nelson. Of course, after seven years, that was a big blow. And then we lost a tyre contract, and then BMW were getting a bit miffed with the way they were working with us. Um, so we lost the engine contract. And then the final straw was Elio got killed. Elio De Angelis got killed in testing a Paul Ricard. And I never lost the drive. 80? 86. Yeah. And in 86, the whole thing was just decaying. And I actually went to Bernie and said, you know, I think 17 years, you know, we've done very well together. I've had enough, you know. Um, and, and Bernie was, he'd had enough too, to be honest. And I thought, that's it. I, I want to go and be, I want to do some consultancy. I'd love to do a road, road car. I'd love to do like the ultimate road car. And uh, I'll find some backers and I'll go and do that. And then, but Ron had just lost uh, John Barnard to Ferrari. And Ron approached me and he was very, very persuasive. 
not with finance, funnily enough, I didn't get any more money, but with, you know, you can't like, leave Formula One like that and you come and join us, I mean, you can have completely free hand. That was, that's what attracted me because McLaren was a much bigger deal. Uh, because when I left, I still only had David North and myself and a couple of junior people in design. And I think McLaren had 12 people in the, in the design office and they had a marketing team and, and a big factory and stuff. So uh, he said, if you come, uh, you can be technical director and you can be in charge of everything, not just design, but the, but the, the factory, the testing, the making of the component, every, anything you like, basically. So I thought, okay, then I said, right, I'll sign for three years. How far had you got with your idea for the ultimate road car before Ron intervened? Just sketches. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I was still busy in Formula One in 86. Yeah. And uh, I thought, that's it. But I said to Ron, I will sign for three years, but whatever you offer me, that's it, because that's 20 years in Formula One, and I need a new challenge. I'm tired of traveling around the world. You know, The first 11 years with Bernie, I had three weeks holiday in 11 years. That's how intense it was in those days. Um, and... Uh, so I signed as technical director, and the, the first car, unfortunately, had already been designed, the car for 87 had been designed by like a consortium after Barnard left, but it was really just a rehashed. And who were the drivers for 87? Uh, 87 was um, Stefan Johansson and Prost, I think. Yes. It? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right, isn't it? Yeah. And, and John's car was a brilliant design in 81, MP41 or whatever well, it was. It was the first carbon tub? First, yeah, partial carbon yeah. tub. Yeah, the first carbon tub was actually, um, uh, what was his name? ATS. It was a first complete carbon tub. Okay. Um, but it was a breakthrough, you know, and the car was a really good car, and it was very, very, very good. But by the time it got to 86, it was getting a little bit tired, if you like, and it needed a revamp. And unfortunately, it was just before I started. So the team there had done a revamp of it, and it wasn't particularly competitive in 87. But it did give me the opportunity in 87 to start once again with a completely clean sheet of paper, new engine, uh, new chassis, new everything. And, uh, and the engine was a Honda? Honda V6. And that was the MP44, which went on to win the championship of 50, yep. 15 out of 16 races. And then I did the five and the five B and had another two championships. So I had three years there and three championships was a nice way to end. And you got to work with Prost and Senna. Yes. We can't do this without you telling us a little bit about well, I th I them think as individuals. Everybody, everybody says to me, that must have been hell, you know. It wasn't. It was the opposite. I mean, yeah, a bit tricky to manage, but I had ways of doing that. I'd worked with quite tricky drivers before, moody drivers, I mean, you know, uh, prima donnas. Um, the one thing I couldn't get over was how the drivers were treated at McLaren because at Brabham, Bernie treat they were employees, yeah. you know, and they did whatever they were asked. In McLaren, it was like, oh, no, they're off skiing. They can't go testing. I was, oh, no, that doesn't work with me. <laughs> um, that sort of stuff. But it, it was fantastic having two drivers that could had an equal chance of winning because you knew if both cars finished, you were going to be one, two, if the car was good enough. So... Um, I was just very strict with them, the way they operated within the team, with sharing information. I didn't want anybody hiding, um, you know, tyre choices and things. So we always did a debrief with both drivers, both race engineers together, and me in the middle. And if I caught them uh, behind a truck doing a deal, I uh, took away a set of qualities. <laughs> and it, it worked. 
there's a lot of um, conjecture now that individual designs are designed around particular drivers um, uh, driving style you know it could be said that you know Sebastian Vettel post uh, blown diffuser isn't the same driver did you ever feel in your mind that you were designing a racing car that was a bit more center or a bit more prost or was um, it not as nuanced then was it not as much known through data yes because even long before that uh, Carlos Reutemann, for example, who's a lot quicker than people give him credit for, but quite moody on, you know, on the right day, he's unbeatable sort of thing. Um, he loved a car that was very delicate and high-speed corners, absolutely loved it. But that was, and the 44 was one of those cars, so that I lucked in rather than designed it for Carlos. But what I did find early on, that you had to set cars up, this was way before telemetry and stuff. We, well, all we did was poke your head in the cockpit and talk to the driver and then do something. You know? yeah. um, I did find very early on that you had to set cars up very, very differently for different driving styles. And that was also true with, uh, with Prost and Senna. You know? Totally different driving styles. Yep. Because Ayrton's quite, his qualifying laps just seemed to be brutal at times. He just he sort of went to a place where he wanted to grab the thing by the scruff. Yeah. And you, some of the pictures of throttle inputs, you're thinking he's just stamping the thing wide open, sort of four or five different applications in the middle of the corner. It just looked wild. Yeah. And and Alan was a lot more like Reutemann. He was a lot smoother and stuff. Yeah. But in the race, I think Ayrton was a lot smoother. So you've won your championships there. And at what point did you have the first chat with Ron where you said, right, Road car time. Well, I'd been thinking. Uh, I was getting. I was terrified because Formula One was so stimulating and, and and so successful then, and you could still innovate in those days um, with the regulations. So I'd been thinking for the for the the first eighteen months was great, and then my final eighteen months, I was desperately thinking of what the hell I could do. So I I, I went back to thinking, maybe the ultimate road car. You know, why do you have to go to Italy for a supercar sort of thing. You know, why, why can't we do one in the UK? Um, and then we got stuck at an airport, at Lenato Airport in 88, the only race we lost that year, Monza. And it, it was... was Ron was suicidal about that. Ron, <laughs> actually, we were all quite philosophical. <laughs> okay, good. We sort of knew it was going to happen, you know. Um, and we had uh, Crichton Brown, myself, Ron Dennis, and Mansour Auger. And Mansour had long since talked about... Um, doing a road car. In fact, he, he, he mooted the idea with Williams when he was sponsoring Williams with TAG. And uh, they didn't want to do one. Uh, and we just started throwing it around. I was desperate for something to do. Crichton Brown, who was our commercial director, we got along very, very well. He'd always been muttering in my ear about why didn't we do a breakaway company and do a road cars and stuff. And then when Mansour put it on the table in, at Lenate, we, and Ron wanted to expand the, the group, that's right. He wanted an electronics company and to do something beyond Formula One. Um, it all just suddenly gelled, you know, and I thought, well, here's an opportunity to do, uh, you know, the next step, the next challenge. Yeah, but no one had... Did you look at the incumbent road car technology that was being sold at the time by the big players and just think they're slightly taking the mickey here. They're, they're, we're racing yeah. against them, and actually they're selling bits of bent metal that aren't really worth much to, to the public. Yeah, I mean, I, we, we did better than that. We got all the current crop. You know, I'd, I'd already driven the oldies like a Countach and Testarossa and stuff, which is just nightmare on a yeah. stick, an you know, absolute nightmare. Um, 
But then there was a current crop of supercars, which was the Bugatti EB110, the Jag XJ220, the Ferrari F40, the 959 Porsche. Um, those were the current crop. So we borrowed those, and I did dry and wet on a track. I did road driving. And then I wrote down, interestingly enough, not so much the things I enjoyed, because there weren't too many, apart from the F40, which was fun. Yeah. There weren't too many things I enjoyed. I wrote down all the things that were wrong and decided if we were going to do the ultimate driver's car, we had to exorcise those things. like Things like visibility, pedal offsets, turbo lag, um, weight, transient handling, uh, all that sort of stuff, you know. And they all had their own horrible traits. The yeah. best of the bunch by a mile was F40, which was just fun yeah. on the track. But it was just the crudest thing. All the negatives for me with that was just the way it was built. I remember, I think infamously, got into print. I said we couldn't make an F40 because I didn't have anybody in the shop that could weld so badly. Well, they say that, don't they? If you, if you just, buy an F40 and the welding's good in the back, it's had a shunt. Yes. Because it's been repaired by someone. Um, but it had, it had great steering and it was good fun. And they hadn't concentrated on over-boosting it, so the turbo lag was not bad. Yeah. Whereas the EB110 was a complete and utter disaster on the road in particular and on the track. I reckon you'd be quicker in a Golf GTI. Was, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just too heavy. And the turbo lag, under 5.5, five, it had, it, I think famously, I said it had less torque than a Golf, I think. You probably did. Well, it felt yeah. like it, it, almost like a two-stroke yeah. power band, didn't it? You waited it and then it all yeah. arrived. And, the, and the, um, the 220 was just badly packaged you know it was tight in the cockpit no luggage space huge vehicle. huge thing yeah. just bad pack and for me car design is packaging yeah. that is pack it's that's it and 20 years in formula one teaches you how to package a car you know um so that didn't make the grade the 959 was interesting on the circuit in the wet it was the best car by a mile with just a little bit of front wheel drive however in the dry on the limit understeer it it was not satisfying, it understeered, yeah. yeah. And on the road, it seemed a bit pointless. But the worst thing about it was, you knew you were sitting in a 911 with a fiberglass bit on the front and on the back. And I wanted to do completely the opposite. Everything had to be bespoke. You were in a 911. I mean, if you really pulled the blindfold off, you know, you were sitting in a 911 with a 9 How did you get access to all these cars? Did you uh, go to Ferrari, can we borrow an F40? No, did you? no, I think it was friends. Just Mansell probably owned them all out of Friends course. and I, yeah. I, can't, whoops, I can't remember, but uh, I think it was just friends, you know, and yeah. associates that had them. So you've got an idea of what to do now, and ha- the, I suppose the great story looking back on the F1 is that it just happened at such an unfortunate point in financial history, didn't it? You know, yes. you, you decide to build this thing, I presume the numbers just get more and more out of control, it becomes more and more expensive, but because it has to be this amazing vehicle and the press are behind you at this point I, this is my era i'm mm. reading it i'm doing my gcse's and my a levels i'm reading about this thing that's coming and the specification is so far beyond anything we've heard of before mm. but the number gets more and more and more it starts out at this price and it gets more and more and how are you managing all that um i i didn't the good thing was i never had a budget for the price of the car never ever um, and that was a good thing. What was it, 600 and something thousand? 640 with tax, I yeah, think it was, yeah. yeah. Um, so I never had a budget. Bearing in mind, a Testarossa was 140 grand then. Yeah, I mean, it was the first million dollar car, basically. And we had no idea how many people that were out there that, that could afford that car or even wanted one. And uh, so, but I did have a very strict budget for the program, a tiny budget for the program. 
So it had to be kept very, very tight, the size of the team and the time it took to make the car. And um, in fact, I can't believe we did it on the budget we had now. But the, but the cl clever thing wasn't making a budget for the car. But of course, when we announced the price, because we'd taken 50 grand deposits, and when we announced the price, you know, three quarters of those people just disappeared because it was such a lot of money. And then we had the recession, uh, the financial downturn. Um, but in the end, uh, although the road car didn't make money, the racing cars made a lot of money, which more than made up for the loss with the road car. It's amazing, isn't it? The racing cars made the money, but the yep. road cars didn't. How many were made in total in the end? Uh, 28. We made much more money with the racing cars than we expected to make with the road car, actually. And then, of course, putting a price for a, for a car company on winning Le Mans, I don't know how you quantify that, but, of course, when we won Le Mans, that really... Uh, raised the shares, if you like. Yeah. And it was that that got us the, and, and nine months of work with me going to Stuttgart, that got us the SLR program. That's interesting to me, the SLR program. I can, and I, I assume it's not the happiest part of your, no. of your career. But can we just talk about it a bit? Because it was a vehicle that, sure. that I found fascinating. And it's yeah. when I, it's, I always, you know, I don't, I've never met you before actually like this, but, I, but I've always wanted to meet you because I thought to myself, I really get what he thinks now because if he thought if he thinks the SLR was a, was was not what he wanted to make, then I I kind of agree with him. So you've you've gone to Mercedes. You've got this you've got this idea now to well, get a car company involved. It started before that. It started with BMW because BMW was so chuffed with the publicity they got with the F1. I mean, for the amount of input they had. Um, I mean, we worked really well together. They Is were, it true? I've missed out this. I should have asked this. Is it true that it's just too whatever they are, 3.2 no, litre Siamese. Is not there no truth in that not at all? A, no truth whatsoever. It was from scratch. It yeah. would, in fact, the M3 straight six came from that engine. Okay, that's interesting. It's the other way around. It's the other way around. It was the first one with variable valve timing. Yeah. And, yeah, it was the other way around. Okay, that's wonderful. So the straight six was half the V12, basically. Not the other way around. Yeah. Great, okay. So, so, that, so that's, the F1 is now already in folklore. You've now gone to Mercedes. Because BMW... No, it started with BMW okay. uh, before I went to Mercedes. So um, they were so pleased with the, with the publicity they got with the F1. Um, I started working on what we call Project 2, which was a small car... And I did two layouts. It was supposed to be built in about a thousand units a year, much more affordable. I, th I can't remember honestly, but I think it was about 150 grand or something like that. And um, I looked at their V8 in line with the more conventional gearbox, and then I looked at taking the straight six, turning it sideways, and leaning it over and rolling it over a transmission yeah. underneath, a transverse transmission, and we did a pretty small little car, about the size of the F1, and the V8 was a two-seater, and the six-cylinder was a two-plus-two. And I did the layouts, and we did some styling drawings, and we did a business plan, and I took it across to the BMW board, and we heard nothing for a bit, and then Karl-Heinz Karpfen and, and Paul Roscher came back to me and said, you've got it, you, you've got it. So I thought, fantastic, so that's gonna be a challenge bringing the price down to that, and doing a car where the packaging was better. Still than a carbon tub, or was it more conventional? No, it was more conventional. Yeah. It had some carbon panels in it, but it was more conventional. And an aluminium body. And uh... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Then Ron Dennis announced that he just signed a five-year contract with Mercedes-Benz for Formula One engines. You're going, what? And we, yeah, <laughs> there goes my company down the tube that we've all worked so hard to build. And um, we were going to meet... BMW, we flew across in the, in the company plane to Munich Airport and BMW have an office and we were going to meet them there for Reitzler to come down and tell us we got the deal. And all the way over in the plane, Ron said, you're an engineer, you don't understand, they'll be fine, you know, it's Formula One and it's road cars. And I went, Ron, you have no idea, you really have no idea how much they hate each other, these people, and how competitive they are, you yeah. know, quite rightly. And, what um, year is this now? Ninety um, six, seven? Where are we? Ninety. Let me think. When you start F one, yeah, about ninety seven, ninety eight, something yeah. like that. And uh, anyway, we got out and we went into the office, and Russia was beaming, and Karl Heinz Karfeld was beaming. You must have been wanting the world to sw- the earth to swallow you up. Reitzler came in. Ron said, uh, "Before we go," and Reitzler said, "Got some great news, you know." And Ron said, oh, before you say anything, I just to, it won't affect us at all. I just need to tell you what we've done. And Wrightsley just said, goodbye, Mr. Dennis, and turned around and left. And that was the end of my car company, basically. So I then had to dream up something to keep us going. I, I took the company down to absolute minimum critical mass to keep it going. And by now, was McLaren Automotive a separate concern? Yeah, it always was. Yeah, McLaren yeah. Cars, as yeah, it was yeah, then, yeah, yeah, was yeah. separate. Yeah. Separate, yeah. And... Uh, Anyway, Who owned it? Um, I was a 20% shareholder. Yeah. And uh, the rest of the shareholding was the, the main the, board. Yeah. 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 So um, anyway, so I came up with a car, so I thought better do something with Mercedes then. So we, I designed this little thing, took the Mercedes V8 and did a little, t- it was a much bigger, heavier engine. And we did a little two-seater sports car, which could be made in a more conventional again which could be made in up to 1,500 units a year. And a really sexy little car, actually quite light and quite different from the Ferraris and things out there. And we sent that to Mercedes, heard nothing for three months at all. And then they came back and they said, the bad news is we're not doing your car. The good news is we got a job because we've just had the show car, Vision SLR, and we want to produce it. So you get to do everything, engineer it, make it, test it, homologate it. And that was the beginning of the SLR. How do you feel about the SLR now? I'm still extremely proud of the structure. The structure broke new ground and the, and the manufacturing methodology. To keep it carbon, it had a robot-bonded carbon tub. It had um, glass beads injected into the roof spider. The roof spider was a single-piece molding. I mean, it just it broke new ground everywhere. 
Um, unfortunately, you have committees and levels of management, and you'll never get an iconic motor car out of committees and levels of management. So it ended up not knowing what it wanted to be, to be honest. Um, I, we didn't do the styling, so I absolutely first one to put my hand up and say, I didn't do the styling on that one. Um, and it, it just sort of, it had an identity crisis. Funnily enough, now looking back, as a long distance continental cruncher, it's probably quite a good machine. But as a sports car, probably not. Yeah. I remember first driving one, I was in Northampton and I tried to pull out of T-junction and I, there was this slight issue with there being 1.8 metres of it ahead of, <laughs> and I couldn't, I basically had to block the road before I could see where I was going. Yes. And I, I, I did think it was a bit strange, but there was lots of talk around um, the fact that you decided to, to leave the project and, and, and I think that, was, that dealt it a big blow before it was even mm. on sale. You know, the idea that you, the father of the greatest supercar ever, decided you didn't want to put your name to this thing. It's quite a yeah, big statement. I mean, it, was, it was, yeah, it, engineering-wise, it was a great thing. It really was. I mean, the torsional rigidity and the safety, you know, it was the first five-star Merc, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, but that doesn't make for an iconic motor car, unfortunately. No. Yeah. Okay, so SLR's done. And um, what happened after that? Because you, you didn't really disappear, but did you just go and start? You started your soap racing. I remember that, no, all no. that stuff. Oh, no, I had 25 years of that. Okay. Um, no, I, um, I was cobbling away in the background, trying to, for two years, trying to come up with a, with a way of making carbon fiber chassis monocoques yeah. um, in higher volume. So I spent two years, well, 18 months actually on that. And I managed to do that, which is actually the methodology that's similar to what McLaren are using now. Because a lot of their tubs aren't honeycomb. They're yeah. just monolithic carbon yeah. uh, with, press, with pressings. So um, were you involved in creating their monocell? Um, n not, not as much, but the technology behind it. I spent 18 months looking at that. Okay. But at the same time, I then thought, well, a much bigger, that's okay, 1,500 cars a year or 2,000 cars a year, you know, that's, that's no big deal. We could make 700 SLRs a year with that technology. And that was all honeycomb, like Formula One. And then I thought, in that period, I thought, you know what, there must be a way of taking Formula One technology and making it very fast and very affordable. And that became iStream. So when I'd invented iStream, I went to the board and said, are you interested in doing this for everyday cars? We can license the technology. And they went, no, nah, not really. We're going to keep making sports cars. So I left and started GMD yeah. to develop and industrialize iStream. And that, and, that, and that T25 came out of that, didn't it? Yeah, T25 was just a little demonstrator. We've done, oh, we've done uh, the new TVR, if they ever get the act to get on the finances. We've done that off-road truck. The Ox. Yep. Uh, we've done uh, two sports cars, two other sports cars, one petrol, one electric. Uh, we just launched an autonomous pod just before the, the lockdown. Um, and we're working on s with several th people all around the world on iStream products. But uh, that all put, came to a big standstill in April. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully we'll pick it up again when we can. Before we start to talk about the T50 just in some detail, and we'll, we'll, we'll lump in that at the end, um, we're just going to take a quick break now, guys. Um, uh, I don't know about you, but my brain is frazzled. I can't believe I'm sitting here um, getting to talk to this man about this stuff. So go and have um, a quick comfort break. I suggest a cup of tea, Yorkshire tea being the best tea at the moment. And for your biscuit choice, I'd go for a chocolate hobnob. Uh, and then we'll join you back after the break. Thank you very much.
Collecting cars, the safe, smart and simple way to buy and sell collectible cars. An online auction platform for the UK and Europe. Follow us on Instagram at Collecting Cars and also CollectingCars.com. Collecting Cars Podcast with Chris Harris. Welcome back to this Collecting Cars Podcast. Uh, my mind is being blown by Gordon Murray. We've um, we've gone through his his background career in F1, and we've discussed the remarkable F1 supercar, and we've done the SLR as well. Now moving forwards, we're talking about um, Gordon Murray design and his um, his eye stream. Uh, industrial process, I suppose, is the correct way of putting it, isn't it? Yep. Um, but I also want to ask him now, because he's he's one of these sage-like figures in our industry, what he thinks about this sort of inexorable move towards electrification and and what it actually means and whether, and whether he carries some cynicism around it. What do you think? Well, electric cars, I mean, people are using them like the silver bullet, and they are, really, particularly governments. I don't think, I don't think the government, um, even though... I think this government's done a lot of good. They don't listen to the right people, I think, before they blurb out about... Uh, uh, I mean, it's like it's uh, talking before you engage your brain, isn't it? All, all internal combustion engines will be dead by this p- time or period. Um, that's nonsense, really. Um, but the current battery technology is, is just so awful from a, from a power density point of view. Um, and then you're carrying around batteries and all the equipment. The cars get heavier, and therefore, you know, the brakes have to work harder. The tires wear out quicker. The de- road damage gets worse. Everything gets worse. Spirals out of control as as any car gets heavier. And I think the elephant in the room is life cycle analysis too. I don't think anybody wants to talk about life cycle analysis, the actual energy it takes to make a motor car in the first place. Uh, an electric car. And I think they start making sense when two things happen. When we get the next generation of batteries, which are much better from a power density point of view, and therefore lighter. Do they exist yet? Do we know they're no. coming? No, they don't. Um, we've been promised them. I, I, I doubt whether we'll see them in the next five to ten years. But, but there's, people are spending billions on them, so hopefully they'll arrive. And then the other thing we need to address is the life cycle. You know, we need to really have a long, hard look at where all the uh, the ingredients are coming from for the battery, um, the energy it takes to make an electric car, the energy it takes to make the battery, uh, and then what happens to them when they're finished. Because it's fine now we've got, I don't know, probably less than 2% of cars are electrified at the moment. But if you suddenly went to 50% or 70 or 100%, what's going to happen to all the old batteries? I mean, there's all sorts of big questions that are just being pushed to one side because people think this is the simple answer, and it isn't really. Um, so I, I don't think it's anywhere near as black and white as people say, and I think the IC engine is going to be around a long time. I, th- I get quite depressed when I think about this because when, when one scrutinises it, and I share all of your views, and I'm not as educated as you on the subject, but I... I don't see electricity as being the, the sole future at the moment. I don't see an infrastructure that's workable. I see, frankly, lies being peddled around the overall cleanliness of these electric vehicles because, as you say, it doesn't take into account what what they emit in being produced and being disposed of. So the phrase zero emissions really winds me up because it's not a zero emission vehicle. 
Um, it's a bit like when they say that's the government's money. It's not the government's money, it's our money. Um, so I'm frustrated by that. But when you scrutinise it, I, I, don't, I don't see a conclusion at the moment that leads to a new technical solution. It, to me, it leads to the end of personal transportation as, as we see it. I, I, I see changes in ownership, in, in how you interact with a vehicle like that. And I, I can't see how it's going to happen in 30 years' time. The way, the, way the, the, the legislators and the governments want us to interact with, with these machines, they're either not going to be affordable or they're not going to be clean enough for people to want to use them. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, or I, think, I think everything's changing. Um, and it's changing with different pressures from different areas. I think the ownership model is going to look completely different in 10, 15 years' time. Uh, the usage of cars, not just the ownership, but the usage, the way they get serviced, uh, central ownership models. Um, the old, I feel quite sorry for the big OEMs that are stuck with all this, um, even the way we sell cars, yeah. uh, this expensive real estate in the middle of cities which actually you're just not going to need in future to buy a car or service a car or own a car, for that matter. And there's pressure coming from um, buying buyers' behaviour, where people are living in future, uh, more and more people moving into you know urbanised areas, um, urban areas, who probably don't want a car. What do you think you know? car enthusiasm looks like in 20 years' time? <laughs> I think classic cars are going to become even more important. Uh, but, we, what's a, but what's a 250 GTO worth if you can't drive it anywhere near a city because it's a zero emission zone? Is it still worth the same money because it's a piece of art? It's a fact of your modern Picasso. If it's only cities, probably yes, because you probably wouldn't drive a 250 yeah. GTO around the city too much yeah. anyway. But what if you couldn't um, drive it in England? Oh, well, that's a different story. Yeah. It's coming, isn't it? Yeah, probably. Um, I hope classic cars are around for a long time because, you know, it's people spend... A a lot of their own money, and I'm not just talking 250 GTOs, I'm talking minis, yeah. Cinquecentos, uh, Sprites, you know, people spend a lot of their money keeping those in good condition for for posterity and yeah. the nation, if you like. But see, uh, what, what my generation and your generation view as posterity, my children view as being wasteful, smelly, and they, they, are, they are under attack from a constant barrage from from the media, from their teachers. You wouldn't mm. believe. I mean, my no, teachers I, constantly I, I, tell my children how evil my job is, basically. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you're right, because, you know, if we, had, if we had a world full of steam engines belching out black smoke um, and, and dropping soot on everybody, and <laughs> there'd be lots of people complaining. Yeah. Um, however, people still love going in a steam engine. Yeah. So it'll be around for a while. I mean, I'm, I'm just... If, if you said to me, I could have been born at, at a different time, but I had to give up, you know, the period I've lived through, I wouldn't change it for a second. You know, I've <laughs> just been very, very lucky. Even now, you know, yeah. enjoying, enjoying uh, decent driving machines and driving experiences even now. And I, that's going to go on for a bit, but inevitably things will change. So it's, that seems like a good point to discuss the T50 because it this does seem like, the right time for your car. It feels like this is the last opportunity, really, to do a car like this. Because the volumes are right, the, the price doesn't really matter because there's enough rich people about, probably, to because your name's on it, and it's the new F1, effectively, that you'll be fine there. And you can just about get away with making just an internal combustion engine, relatively small capacity V12, and keeping the weight down. You don't have to have any hybridity in there at all. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is the perfect time to do 
the last great analog um, supercar because 15 years ago, uh, it would have been completely wrong. First of all, nobody had caught up with the F1 15 years ago. And secondly, the technology, materials, and systems hadn't, hadn't advanced enough to do anything. Do, doing a 10% better F1 is completely pointless. This isn't a slightly better F1. This is a new statement, if you like, based on the F1 principles, but it uses all the modern systems, technology, and materials to move the game forward, in my opinion, as much as the F1 moved it forward in 90, 92. That's a big statement. Yeah, but I can say it because I, I know, um, and my team knows, I've got a fantastic team this time, uh, we know what makes the F1 good and what was wrong with the F1. And there were plenty of things wrong with the F1. I've only driven one once, and I have to say I found it eye-opening. The handling was interesting. Yeah, it's the, it's the instant response. You know, I've driven... There are masses of supercars out there much more capable than the F1. Yeah. Much, much more. And I've driven all of them, you know, on the track and on the road. I mean, just some of them are three times more capable um, with the way they get They're round. They're not three times the driving experience. Though, no, they? that's the thing. And none of them... None of them, there's two things that none of them have done for me. None of them, when I've jumped out of them, I'm walking away, I don't want to look over my shoulder and look back, that's number one. And the second one is, can't wait to get back in there again, which is what happens when I get back in an F1. I've done 30,000 miles in F1, did a lot of the testing myself. And every time I drop back into the driver's seat, it just feels right, yeah. you know. And um, I think now is the time to actually do one more great analog motor car. So some very simple, but um, they might seem quite strange questions. How do you make the T50 have better intake noise than an F1? Because the, it, the, the, intake, noise of the intake noise of the F1 sits with me forever. Yeah. Well, that was a bit hit and miss because I, I knew we were going to have to pass. We didn't have any bypass valves on the F1, so we had to pass the Swiss drive-by, which I think was 73 decibels from memory. So I knew you weren't going to hear the exhaust, especially as your ears were a long way from the back of the car, sitting mm. that far forward. So um, the induction noise you get back up an inlet tract when you get the uh, camshaft overlap. So you've got... On a high-performance engine, you've got inlet exhaust valve open at the same time for quite yep. a long time. You get a lovely pulse. And if you've got a direct ram induction box like a, like a racing car, which I had on F1 and have on T50, that noise comes right back. And then I stop the intake just by the driver's ear. And then I tune the thickness of the carbon so it resonated like a loudspeaker with the pulse. So the growl you get with an F1 is not so much rev dependent, it's throttle opening dependent. So you can be 100 mile an hour on 10% throttle, the car's relatively quiet. But if you press the throttle you get the noise. to overtake somebody, you get this wonderful growl. But I didn't have much time to experiment with the noise. I just thought, well, make one layup one mil and one layup 1.2 or something, and we'll see with the prototypes. Um, with T50, we're actually making, on the early prototypes, we're making a picture frame that we can slot different thicknesses of carbon in until we tune the noise so it's even better. And then, when we've got it right, we'll actually just lay out the production cars with that thickness. Love it. Okay, another F1-related question. As a kid, I can remember reading those big early stories in car and autocar, and they transfixed me. And going to Kenwood to have them make 
a, high, a CD changer that was a kilogram, whatever, three hundred grams lighter. Of course, it was the it was a wonderful example of this obsessive weight loss thing that was used forever. What's happened on this car? How have you managed to lighten the high fi or, or do you not need to? I you... threw down. No, no, you do. I threw down the challenge with the F1. I think I think I had five or six people come and uh, get interviewed for the job. And when I said the average weight of a system then was 16 kilos, and I just picked an arbitrary half. Yeah. I said our target is eight. I've done no calculations. Five of them got up and walked out. But Kenwood stayed, and they hit 8.5 kilos, which was amazing for a CD changer system. This time, we've gone to a great British company, Arcan. Um, they're part of the Harman Group. Yeah, I used to buy their amplifiers. Uh, yeah, they make yeah. top-end yeah. stuff. Yeah. And they haven't done a car system before. No, exactly. So when I gave them the weight target, you know, there was, well, we like a challenge type thing. Um, anyway, they've come back with a system which I think is a nominal 700 watts, 10 loudspeakers, Pre-amp, power amp, all the usual stuff, built-in crossover system. Um, and it's 4.35 kilos. And I presume it's just a streamer now, is it? Does it have a CD player or not? No, it doesn't have a just CD Just a streamer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is which is amazing. Really. Is there going to be an Arcam logo in the car or not? <laughs> um, I don't know yet. Yeah, it depends on the deal, I suppose. But, uh, oh, that's fantastic. I love the fact that you've gone to a good cottage industry uh, British hi-fi manufacturer to do that. It was important to me that this car was British, really yeah. important. Um, from a, from a sort of from a a passion point of view, but also I needed to protect us against Brexit and currency fluctuation, all that sort of stuff. So ninety percent of the supply chain are UK. Um, other stuff. I mean, I don't want to brush over it too quickly, but you told me that the there is some chassis electronics. There has to be an ABS system, and there is an, e, an, an ESP system, which is mm. going to be. It's not. You sign the car off chassis-wise beforehand, then you bolt this on afterwards. Yep. As a, as a, That's as, right. Is what you need to do. That's from Continental, is it? The system. Yes. Um, who's doing tires? Who's doing brakes? So tires are no-brainer for me. Michelin. They're yeah. still the best a technical company on the planet. And I've worked with Michelin for decades now, and you know, won won championships with them, Le Mans. Um, so uh, we're working very closely, but this time. Um, rather than do a special size and mould. I've tried to make the car practical. All the things that upset people with owning an F1, like the bag tank has to be changed every year and, and you have to take the engine out to do that. Uh, this is a fit-for-life tank, but if you have to change it, it comes out the floor sort of thing. Uh, it doesn't have a carbon clutch that needs adjusting every few thousand miles and stuff like that. And the tyres, we've gone for a standard size mould. And of course, the car's not with that weight. We don't need big tires. So, how, what's what's the rear tire on it? Uh, Two nine five. Okay. So you know that's all it needs. Is it? Yeah. Wow. And is it, is it going to be an off-the-shelf tire as well? It's off-the-shelf mould. Yeah. But we'll work with Michelin on the on the construction and the compound. And will it be a way. Cup Two or a Four S? Or it's a... A, I think it's a Cup Two. Is it? No. You got me there. I think it's 4S. The it's, 4S. It's a standard. It's yeah. not their sort of semi-racing tire. They're, they're, they're I think four, it's 4S. Uh, yeah. This 4S, yeah. is, you might have them on your Alpine, which we can discuss in a minute. Mm -hmm. it, the, this tire is magic. I'm not sure it was made by human beings. I think it was made by Dumbledore <laughs> because it, it's off the scale. I've put some on my, on my Porsche and it... Yeah. It's 90% of a Cup 2, yeah. but then it's fantastic in no, the temperatures. The, yeah, yeah, I've just it's, remembered it's a 4S, yeah. Yeah, it, its bandwidth is unlike anything I've driven yeah. before. And the wheels aren't huge either. They're, we've got 19s on the front, 20 on the rear, so they're not, you know, ridiculous 22-inch nonsense. And have you, 
Have you applied the Gordon Murray weight test to everything again? Have you just gone through it? Absolutely. We have we have half a dozen Weight Watcher meetings every single uh, week on various uh, component groups in you know like powertrain, uh, body, chassis, and uh, everything gets scrutinised every single week. Now the engine. We've seen a video clip now of the of this magnificent V12 running up on the dyno. Um, with some amazing statistics about how it'll hit 12,000 RPM and 0.3 of a second and stuff like that. Um, but I love the fact that the, the emphasis here is on the experience that the engine provides rather than just some meaningless power figure. Because as long as it produces enough power to make this thing as fast as a missile, that's all that matters, isn't it, really? Yeah. The rest of it is about how it drives. Absolutely. I, I have abs- not, Right from the beginning, like the F1, I have no interest in 0-60 time, 0-100, Nürburgring lap time, whatever, top speed. This car has to produce the best driving experience on the planet, full stop. And the engine is at least 50% of that for me, maybe even more, actually, in a supercar. And so it was never going to be anything but a V12 or NA, uh, just never. And the, the <laughs> I, I set Cosworth some ridiculous targets um, with uh, revs and weight of the engine, pickup speed and all that sort of stuff, and they've hit everything. I mean, both Extract and Cosworth have been fantastic people to work with. And it revs to 12? 12.1. Soft stop, 12.4, hard stop. Um, and with a conventional valve train on it? Yeah, that How was the challenge. How does that work? Well, I don't know. That's the challenge. So doesn't it need pneumatic valves at but that? But even more importantly, I really felt an idiot with Cosworth because I started in engines right in the beginning, as we talked about. Um, so I consider myself an engine person ahead of being a chassis person. And right in the beginning, I said to them, look, you know, I want two engine modes. It's fine revving to 12. That's great. You know, we've beaten my, I held the record of the LCC rocket, which was 11.5 for a road going car. Uh, We've beaten that. That's great. But most people are going to want, not going to want more than Ferrari revs, you know, like nine grand or something. Why why don't we do two modes? So we move the torque down in the lower mode. So when you're poodling around, dropping the kids at school, you've got torque lower down. They said, you won't need that. And I went, no, but I want it. And they went, you won't need it. And I went, no, I really want it. Because when I grew up, you either had revs or torque yeah. in the 60s. And you couldn't have both. And then last year, they showed me the final torque and power curve. And it, it produces 70, more than 70% of maximum torque at 2.5 in the, in the 12,000 rev mode. And I felt such an idiot. You know, We still have two modes. <laughs> but the, 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 they are just the best engine. Is, it, is that down to the metallurgy and stuff they're using, or is it no, down to just how clever the engine management it, is now? It's, uh, no, it's not even that. It's, uh, the engine management certainly helps. With a throttle cable, you get what... Once you've written a map, you've got what you've got with a throttle cable. Um, but, and the energy management obviously helps the electronic side. But it's much more than that. Their, their thermal, the thermal side, the combustion technology that Cosworth have is like second to none. So they have uh, tumblers they can deploy to change the burn rate in the, in the cylinder. Uh, they have twin port injection and they can play those ports against the valve timing with the cam and the ignition timing. Do you, so, do you have these meetings now and think, God, I wish I'd had that in F1? There's a uh, new toy cabinet. In Formula One? Sorry, yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. Uh, but that's just another reason why it's time to do another supercar because everything's moved on just so much more. I mean, and ultimately... This thing is going to be a rocket ship, you know. It's it's a Lotus Elise with a 660 horsepower V12 in the back. You know. 
that does make it sound quite appealing. Um, going to make a hundred. Yep. I have to ask you how many you sold. We've actually well, we had a, we had a discussion with the shareholders right in the beginning, and they said, "Do you think we'll pre-sell?" Because we weren't going to do what every other car company on the planet does and put out teasers and renderings that were nothing like the finished car, or worse still, an early show car that doesn't look like the finished car. Yeah. I hate that stuff. I didn't do it with the F1, and I haven't done it with this. And we got around, and they said, um, "Do you think we'll pre-sell any?" You know, and I said, yeah, sure, of course. You know, I know people with F1s. I know people that had F1s and sold them too early. There's a bunch of young people out there I know that didn't have F1s that will want one. Probably 10, 12, you know. If you'd said to me we'd sell over two-thirds of the car cars based on a ballpoint sketch which took me two and a half hours to draw, <laughs> and I would never have believed it. I would never, ever have believed it. I think you underestimate the currency that your name carries well, within this industry. Well, even so, though, there's a lot out there now, you know. And with the F1, it was you said earlier, it was the first of its type, if you yeah, like. But it's interesting that you should say there's a lot out there. But let's quickly do this now. And I, I don't want... I know that you don't want to just sit here and dismiss what's out there at the moment. But I, what excites me about this car is it is... It's, it is a collection of absurd numbers still. And, it, and you could argue it's, its outright performance potential is meaningless on the public road. But it sounds to me like it's going to be fun to drive at low speed as well as high speed. And that's a good way into the modern hypercar for me. Because they are, as a genre, they've, they've lost not just any kind of relevance. Because they're, they're by, by definition they're irrelevant. But they've, they've lost the, any point of existing. Because they don't provide a driving experience at low speed. You have to be up them at remarkable speeds that are totally illegal and ridiculous to make them work at all. And most of them are pointless on a track. Because why would you take one on a track day because they're all worth a million quid and you'll chip your carbon paintwork. I can't, I, I could draw the pie chart of the usefulness of a supercar at the moment or a hypercar and you wouldn't even see the slither of pie that that, that represented. Mm -hmm. And I just don't understand how it's happened really. They're just being bought by the, the wrong people for the wrong price at the wrong time really. Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I think the same way and I think right now, that's why we're only doing 100 cars because I think they're, they're well we can see there's, 100 people out there that want this driving experience and don't just want to do 250 miles an hour. Nobody, nobody that buys a 250 mile an hour car ever does it anyway. I mean, I, I had an F1 for years. I never got it over 225, for example. You know, you don't, you don't buy a car that can do 270 to do 270. You buy it for bragging rights. You do, or what you do is, you know, that manufacturer that's based in Molsheim, they they sell you a car that's 250, and the only way you can do it is to turn up at their organised day at Air Lessing and do 250. But at that point, you're doing it in a very sanitised environment. What's mm -hmm. the point? You know, it's a bit. I don't. I totally agree with you. I don't. Yeah, see the I point. think. I think this. I think 50 breaks. You know, one side of the coin, you could say, well, it's a pretty conventional car. You know, it's got double wishbone suspension. Hasn't got any trick hydraulics on it. It's NA V12. It's a manual gearbox. It's pretty conventional. But it's meant to be because it's meant to break the mold of everything you've just said about the current crop of supercars. And as a designer, you know, I've fought weight all my life. The, the only thing in a, in a car, any car, that counts against you every second the car is moving is weight. It doesn't matter whether you're cornering, accelerating, braking, steering, whatever you're doing, it counts against you. And we, we added up all the supercars and the average current weight is just over 1,400 kilos. And the one thing you can't change is the laws of physics, no matter how clever you are. You can disguise weight, 
that you cannot change the laws of physics and you'll never get transient handling with a heavy car that feels like a light car. Forget the horsepower. Jump back in a Lotus Elan, you know, and, and whiz around a few corners. Within 10 minutes, you'll be seeing, <laughs> jump in a, a rocket. We'll be smiling, that's the yeah. key thing. Yeah, that, that's so, it. So does it have power steering, this? Uh, yes and no. Um, it's designed, most designers corrupt steering geometry. There's five elements that join together to make feedback and feel, weighting up and stuff. Um, kingpin inclination, caster angle, Ackerman, pneumatic trail, and offset to the contact patch. Those are the five things that interact. If you know as a designer you've got power steering, the packaging is so difficult with big heavy disc brakes and the bottom wishbone ball joint usually, you'd corrupt one or two of those elements because you know the power steering is going to um, make up for it if you like. Um, I don't subscribe to that. So this has got pure, it's got all the elements within my limits, all those five elements. And then, uh, like the F1, that was, uh, you know, manual steering, but it was a pain to park yeah. and, and maneuver. So what we've done, we've got a, a very light electric system that clutches in below a given speed, and we'll find out what that speed is when we run XP cars in October. And um, it clutches in, it just gives you a little bit of assistance for parking. As soon as you go more than, say, 10 miles an hour, it clutches out and you've got pure manual steering. That's the solution we've all been looking for, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> Wonderful. So the, so the broad numbers are 600 and what horsepower? 663. 663. How much torque? Uh, it's four seven five newton meters, I think. Okay. Yep. And uh, the predicted curb weight with carbon with a carbon roof rather than glass panels. Nine eight six. Nine eight six. Okay. Um, so its power to weight ratio is dry weight is nine five seven. It's off the dial, isn't it? Mm. I can't. Yeah, I can't wait to have a go in it. I really no, can't. Me too. When, <laughs> when, so when XP cars running. Yeah, well, we've got a, we've got mule car. His name is George. Yeah. Um, uh, once again, an ultimate kit car. Yeah. That runs um, the end of next month. When do you expect to deliver the first customer car? January 2022, we start okay. production. Um, and the prototypes we start putting together, XP1 and 2, in September, and they run in October. Have so you I, built the tub yet? Or is it the tub yeah, no, tub's, yeah, the tub's built. Yeah. Fantastic. I can't wait. Now, before we finish, um, I want to ask you about some of your personal cars, because you've mm -hmm. arrived in a beautiful blue Alpine, which is a car I adore. Mm -hmm. Are you enjoying it? I love it. I love it. My, my everyday car for 16 years was a smart roadster yeah. with its bad gearbox and all, because it was just small and fun and light, you know. And on a good day, I could go around the outside of a 911 on a roundabout, just the weight was 830 kilos. Yeah. Um, and the Alpine came along and I thought, right, that's the first car I've seen that's relatively light. Um, if that car was 150 mil narrower and had a manual box, it would be the perfect little sports car. Yeah. The steering's the steering's the only thing that lets it down a little bit. It's, it's still so, damn good for an electric system, it's, though, isn't it's it? It's pretty good. It's pretty good, but it's still not quite there on, on waiting up. Also, do you think it could be improved if you had a thinner steering wheel rim? Because all these modern cars have such thick them. rims. I hate them. If you look inside T50, it yeah. looks like a 1960s car. Yeah. I can't stand... I don't know where they came they, from. It just, it just takes I, any got, feel away. I've got really long fingers, and I can't get my hand around an Alpine wheel. No. I think it's a marketing thing. Yeah. I, I, I don't know where the hell Run they came flat from. tyres, massive spring rate, thick steering mm. wheels. Yep. They basically wreck a car before they've even started, yeah. don't they? Yeah. 
Um, I always remember hearing and reading about you in Car Magazine that you had a Renault Kangoo and stuff down in your place in France. Yeah, have three. You, have, you still, have you still got a passion for quirky French stuff or not? Uh, yeah, um, or quirky stuff, full stop. I needed, uh, in France, the Kangoo down there, I bought in 97. Still got that. Yeah. Um, in Scotland, I've still got a four. I need a four-wheel drive up there. I've still yeah. got that to let. I've just bought a Caravelle to move people around four-wheel drive, but I still got the Kangoo. Uh, the one in England was a diesel. I need one to get out of my drive in winter. I need four four-wheel drive, and you can't find a small, light four-wheel drive. It's the weight mainly that puts people. Off Panda four by four. What have you got? I've got a Suzuki Jimny. Have you? The, the, new, the current one? Yeah, new one. Yeah. yeah. It's a cool little it's thing, fun. isn't it? It's fun. It's great. They've just stopped selling them over as well. I didn't, yeah, I just heard, yeah. I didn't buy it because it's got the best ride on the planet. I bought it because it's small. Yeah. It's, it's light. It's under 1,100 kilos, so it's not going to slide sideways off the road like a Range Rover yeah. in the, on the ice. And it's fun. So how, what comes back here is that, is that there's a passion for size, weight, and all of the things that, that you know matter for a driving experience that's going to be positive. So how do you view the way the car industry's gone? I'm, all I'm seeing is needless SUVs. Everything that could be small is now big. Everything that could be light is now heavy. We talk about efficiency, but we're sitting in a world where the family car no longer exists. So the, the small saloon and estate car doesn't exist anymore, really, because everything has to be a flipping crossover or three feet higher than it is necessary. How have we ended up in this place? I, I don't know. It's, it's either the buying public are greedy or greedy for image or I have no idea. But it's nonsense. You know, I, the analogy I always make is if you said to a young person now, 20 year, we're sitting in a, in a cinema. 20 years ago now, everybody, in, or three quarters of the people here would be smoking. They'd go, for no way. You know, forget it. But yeah. they were. Yeah. I make the analogy, there will be one day when we have to wake up. It's a bit like plastic bottles in the ocean. We'll have to wake up. And you, 20 years' time, you say to a young person, uh, that person used to go and pick up one kid from school in a car that weighed two and a half tons. And pe people are going to go, at some point, people are going to go, no, that didn't happen, surely. Yeah, you're uh, quite right. But it does. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous when you see one person driving in a two and a half ton motor car and you know the energy it's taken to make that the energy it's taking to run it you know uh, it's just no matter what it's powered by it doesn't matter it's just the concept of needing something so huge and bulbous to carry a human being around or two human being around most of the time it's ridiculous i think that's a really good point on which to end thank you so much that's that's um been enlightening and everything else I expected it to be and I, I, I hope that everyone listening has really enjoyed that the very best of luck with the T50 I hope I'll get to drive one at some point I'm sure you will when, um, when you've produced it and we'll follow the journey closely Gordon Murray thank you so much thanks very much it's been a pleasure Selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.